Sir Alex Ferguson's really good friends with Carlo Ancelotti. And I'm like, yeah, I'm the one that got them to have dinner together because Carlo, his first experience with Sir Alex is when Sir Alex knocked his Juventus out of the Champions League in 99. You know, when I was with Carlo and we had one of our tournaments, he's like, ah, I can't stand this guy. You know, I, I shouldn't say it out loud. Like, I can't, this guy, you know, boy, he really gets on me. Every, you know, we were ahead and he, Two nothing. It came back, and they won the cup that year, and we should have won it, and blah blah blah. And I said, "Come on, let's have dinner." And to this day, they're dear, dear friends. Welcome to the Football Studio, a show where I speak with influential people I look up to in the football industry. I'm Sebastian Alvarado. My goal with these conversations is to get to know the person behind the title. I want to understand how they think, how they got to where they are, and get their personal perspectives and insights on all things life, career, and football. Today, Charlie Stilitano, the most interesting man in football. He's the founder and chairman of Relevant Sports, an events and media business mainly known for organizing the International Champions Cup. He's also a radio host on Sirius XM, where he co-hosts the football show every morning. We talk about his journey, starting from an Irish neighborhood in New Jersey to becoming the executive venue director at the Giants Stadium during the 94 World Cup, an event that put him on the map and eventually led him to become one of the most connected and influential executives in the game. He shares some unbelievable stories and talks about his close friendships with the biggest names in football, including the likes of Mourinho, Ancelotti, Maldini, Zidane, and perhaps most notably Florentino Perez and Sir Alex Ferguson, who regularly visit him for cookouts in his backyard in New Jersey. Here's my conversation with Charlie Stilitano. Charlie, welcome to the football studio. Thank you so much, Sebastian. It's really a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. I've been chasing you for years, Charlie, and now we're finally making this happen. <laughs> I know, I know. One of the one of the unfortunate things about having so much free time is uh, assistants decide that you know your schedule for you. So now I'm sitting at home, and they're putting in more meetings than I've ever had in my life. So yeah, it's been strangely very busy lately. Forgive me if I've been difficult. I didn't mean to be. All good, man. Um, have your morning routines changed a lot because of the current situation? No, my go-to routine has been, I usually do the radio at 7 a.m. So I get up every day around 5.30 and I will, uh, my routine is always simple. I'll, I'll get myself something to eat. If I'm doing the show from New York City where I'm working, I'll get up at 4.30 because I have to leave by 5.30, so I get there at 6.30. The show starts recording at 7. If I'm doing the show at home, which is much easier, I get up at 5.30, you know, shower. I will peruse the internet, see what games I've seen or not seen, and look at highlights. At least we can talk about it. And then I do the show 7 to 9. And then I, by the time 9 o'clock rolls along, if I left the house at, you know, <laughs> Five o'clock, five fifteen. I'm pretty tired by the time nine o'clock rolls around. So, my uh, my mornings are filled with coffee. What What do you read to stay up to date? What What are your go to sites? I read every day. I read Gazette de della Sport, and I wake up. I I go to ESPN FC. I go to Gazette de della Sport, and I go to Marca. 
and I get general my my general information from those sort of three sources in the morning. And um, you know, my my Spanish is 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 limited. My Italian's good, uh, but I can get through things, and I can I like to get a sense of what they're talking about especially, you know, the European publications, if we're going to talk about European teams, right? And so, and ESPN is, does a very good job of covering the English game. So, you know, I, I cover at least three of the uh, the big leagues. And uh, if I have time, I will, you know, try to find something on uh, France and Germany. But always between those five big leagues and a Champions League, I get pretty much everything covered. And of course, MLS. On ESPN FC, you get that too. So, what do you do to um, keep evolving yourself? Uh, I constantly uh, challenge myself. I constantly push myself to do different things. I hate the feeling of, I hate the feeling of getting old and being useless. I really do. What does that mean? Well, what it means is like you know, I, I'll look back into different things that I've done in the game and. You know, today I was just complimenting Tab Ramos and Tony Miola and Peter Vermees, excuse me, and uh, Johnny Harks. They did a film, Soccer Town USA, which is really quite a fun film. And two of my buddies did the did the movie, produced, directed, and produced it. And uh, so we were interviewing these guys for a podcast, and I said, you know, they've done so many things for the game in this country, and I'd like to think that I helped along the way and I've done things, but I don't want to, I don't want to stop. If someone says to me, well, you've done a lot of things, you know, uh, I, I don't, even if I feel like, okay, I've, I've worked hard at something, I feel there's so much more to do, right? So what motivates me is, and what pushes me is just the fact that I want to make sure that I'm, uh, that I could leave this earth saying like, I did something good. At this stage where you find yourself in life, if you reflect over that, is it everything that you dreamt of? Well, I got to tell you, that's a great, great question, Sebastian. Is it everything? I think in many ways, I look back and I've, I have accomplished some of the things I wanted to accomplish, right? But I think there's always that. It's interesting. I mean, I mean, this is a very, you know, it's, it's a deep question. It really is. And I think in some things I've really accomplished, I've done more than I thought I would do in certain areas. And in other areas, I feel like I have so much more to learn, so much more to give. Um, you know, I always think that one of the, <clears throat> you know, I'm not in the world where we're saving lives, right? We're not, you know, uh, I'm not a brain surgeon and some poor person has to have a tumor removed and I can do that and say, I saved the person's life or did a heart operation or something. So like, I, I understand that, you know, the limitations to where I am I, and I like to bring some joy to people and, and, you know, the feeling that we've brought the good parts of soccer to the world, right? And what I mean by that is it's not just the game, because the game's just a game. But the wonderful thing about soccer, football, calcio is that it's the only truly multicultural game, right? And so 
you know, you, you know, as a kid, my father was very clear, you know, that we were immigrants. We identified ourselves as Italian immigrants, you know, and well, they're all the, with all the, the good and, 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 and challenges with that on both sides, you know, but you also had a wonderful thing because you knew different cultures. I knew that Brazilians played a certain way. Argentinians played a certain way. <laughs> Mexicans played a certain way. And it was, it was funny because I grew up in an Irish neighborhood. And to them, everyone was white, black, brown. You know, I'm saying those words because that's what they'd look at. But to me, it was, no, 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 no. Those guys are Korean. Those other guys are from Uzbekistan. Those other guys are from Ghana. These other guys are from Nigeria. <laughs> These guys are Argentinians. And no, don't confuse them with Brazilians, you know? And I think that's the wonderful part of our game, right? That, that there's a mutual respect that grows out of the fact that you play this game, right? But I think the real important thing is there, you know the people's cultures and you know their sensibilities. And I think that's something I'm always pushing to learn more and to hopefully bring people together. It's one of my, one of my, the things I love more than anything is, is bringing people together. People say like, Oh, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson's really good friends with Carlo Ancelotti. And I'm like, yeah, I'm the one that got them to have dinner together because Carlo, his first experience with Sir Alex is when Sir Alex knocked his Juventus out of the champions league in 99. And so, you know, when I, was with Carlo and we had one of our tournaments. I think it was the champions world series. He's like, ah, I can't stand this guy. You know, I, I shouldn't say it out loud. Like I can't, this guy, you know, boy, he really gets on me. Every, you know, we were ahead and they two nothing. It came back and they won the cup that year and we should have won it and blah, blah, blah. And I said, come on, let's have dinner. And to this day, they're dear, dear friends. Right. And so that was a nice thing. Talk about bringing two different cultures together. Right. Mm. What's the best advice that your father ever gave you? Remember where you came from and treat people with respect. He always treated people with respect no matter where they were from, no matter what they did for a living. And that has always stuck with me. Um, he said to me one day, which is the nicest thing a father could say, I think, to a, a son or daughter, he said, you know why I love you, son? I said, why, Pop? He said, because you have one face, he said to me. What does that mean? That I'm an honest guy. I'm not, gonna get, I'm not a two-faced guy that's going to give you falsities. I'm going to tell you what I believe, and it's going to come out. I'm not a good liar. You know? <laughs> I'm not a good liar. But that was a nice compliment, the way he said it. You, you only have one face. And I think that's, that's good. It's just about being true to yourself. You know, I mean, and that goes hand in hand. I see now all the terrible problems we have in this world. And I see so many people that are, are families of, of immigrants are, or are immigrants themselves mm. who have no empathy at all for the, right now we have this terrible, you know, tragedy in the country we have with, uh, with between the police and the protesters and, and, and all this going on. And I think, you know, I'll talk to some of my friends that are immigrants and they'll be like, oh, these guys are, you know, these guys. And you just shake your head, you know, you shake your head. And I said, they've forgotten where they came from. And, you know, they've forgotten the advantages that we had or how hard we had to work to get to where we are today. 
And that's something that has my dad taught me and has stuck with me. So it all it rolls down. You become respectful of people. You have empathy. You understand where they're from. You understand that they have problems. I can't pretend for a second I know what it's like to be a, a, a black guy growing up in, in America or a Hispanic immigrant coming here and being treated the way they are. I, I probably have more of a sensibility of the immigrant coming over, but I, I was never enslaved, you know, 300 years ago, my ancestors weren't enslaved. And, and, but I think that you can at least have, you can at least make that connection and you can have some empathy for people. And I think that's, that's what he taught me more than anything. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, before I met you, or even when I first came across the name Charlie Stolitano, I would hear people say he's the most interesting man in football and things like that. And you're laughing. Um, what goes through your mind when you hear that? Well, I'm, I, I really am humble. I think that I'm, I'm like a lot of people in that I have an ego. I don't want to pretend I'm not a guy that, you know, everyone wants to be loved and everyone wants to be, you know, thought well of, right? Um, what goes to my mind there probably more than anything is that I'm getting older and I've been around the block. And so when someone says he's an interesting person, I say, well, that's good, but they wouldn't say I was the most interesting guy in the world when I was 30 or even 40. And now, yeah, when I'm in my 50s, yeah, people start to say it. Now I'm 60, people are telling me, you know, you're an interesting guy. And <laughs> really, in some funny way, it says, well, that's nice. I've lived long enough to be interesting, you know, because I think you've done a lot of things. And, you've, and with these things that you've done, you've, you've learned along the way. So, and I, I'd like to think that I've, I've learned a lot of things. And, you know, I always think of what Paolo Maldini said to me one day. I was uh, interviewing him and Sir Alex Ferguson, and they were together, and they were ambassadors for our tournament and the International Champions Cup. And you talk about winners, right? Talk about two just serial winners. These guys are as, as big as and good as it gets, and two, two of the finest gentlemen on the planet. And I said to him, you won a lot. He said, I've lost a lot. And, mm. and it really struck me as, yeah, you know, you're going to have challenges. And, and I've certainly faced many challenges. Um, and I've certainly been on the, the side of getting fired and getting knocked down and, and, you know, going out of business and getting back up. And, um, it, it struck me, yeah, it's not just in sports where you have it, but even in life and business, you, you, you win, but you also lose a lot, you know? And I think that's when people say that it's very kind of you to say that, that I'm interesting. I mean, I think that says to me that, yeah, I've, I've failed too along the way. Yeah, I've had some successes, but I've had failures too. And I think that's what makes you an interesting person. You know, that's what makes you you know, you've, you've been wounded, you get up again and you, 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 you fight another day. And I think that to me is the most um, important part of, of being called interesting, you know, that you've, you've learned, hopefully you've learned from some of these things, you know? You've said twice now in different contexts that you're getting older. Um, yeah. You feel anxiety about getting older. Yeah, very much, very much. Um, uh, because I don't feel like I'm 60, you know, um, and 
I think there's a stigma out there, especially in the sports world. And my, uh, my CEO, who's a great guy, Danny Silman, uh, he's half my age. And I'm the, the old guy, the chairman, if you will. And one day he said to me, uh, you're not old, you're dead. Like, and he was referring to some marketing comment that I had. And I didn't even think the comment, I didn't even think I had made the comment yet. It was sort of like, hey, I have something I'd like to add. And they all sort of laughed. At, and, and, and I think that people have a sense about who you are when they see you're a, a, a white male at 60 years old. And I am not that guy, especially now in this crazy world we're living in, where, you know, as I referred to it yesterday, we were doing a podcast on racism, and we had Shaka Islop and Paul Canneville, who was the first player to play for Chelsea, and Mark Wright, the ESPN guy, and we were talking to them about racism. And I'm sure they must have thought to themselves, well, here's the 60 old old white guy, what's he got to offer us in this conversation? And, and so in some ways, I say, yeah, I'm anxious about getting older, not because I feel older that I'm not thinking young, but the people, they decide you're old. And that's something that, yeah, it makes me anxious. It makes me want to say like, hey, wait, I'm not like this guy that you think I am. Give me a chance to explain myself. And I think that that I think that there is a certain amount of, you know, we're all being honest here. I've been very honest in this conversation with you, of course, is that, you know, there's certain people that they decide this is who you are as they see you. I said to somebody, he said, well, how old are you? And I said, I'm 60. And the person was like, oh my God, you know? And like, that's in one way, it was a nice compliment. He said, you don't look 60, right? But in another way, I could see immediately after that that he had in his mind, oh my God, this guy's old, you know? And so, yeah, sure. It, it does make me a little anxious, but I'm not panicked about it, but I'm uh, conscious of it, conscious of it. And I, and I want to do more. I think that's why I'm so conscious of it because, uh, you know, there was a funny story and I'm not, I don't even, you know, know the... Um, I know this story. The guy who made, who invented Kentucky Fried Chicken really didn't make it till he was in his 60s, right? And it's fascinating. I saw some little documentary on the guy, you know, and it really, Colonel Sanders, whatever. And it was fascinating to me that this guy made it in his 60s. And now, in the age we live in, and technology, and how quickly it's moving, it's like, if you're not this billionaire by the time you're 25, you can't, you don't offer the world anything else, right? So... That's something that would, you know, I want to say, don't, don't count me out just because I'm, I'm not, no, I'm no longer 30 years old. Don't count me out because I have something that I can offer and something more that I want to do. How do you describe your role today? Um, I'm, I'm one of, um, in my professional career, I'm uh, the mentor phase <laughs> uh, where uh, in our sport, in our business. And so everyone from, you know, 
my buddy Danny Ribeiro, who, who ran the Champions League at UEFA, Chris Unger ran the World Cup for FIFA. I have uh, uh, Nelson Rodriguez is in Chicago. Jay Berhalter has been so successful in his thing. Guys that started out with me, their very first jobs in the sport have have grown and have done great things in the sport. So that's something that I think I've I've always relished. And the again, the older I'm getting, the more uh, the more I guess more philosophical I feel I am. You know, I'll, I'll uh, hopefully I won't bore the hell out of the guys. But if they ask, and it's funny, I have a new assistant, uh, Corel Rafael, who's from Mexico City, and I said to him the other day, "You're the last one." You know, I said, "You're the last one." I'm not going to do this anymore. So listen up when I got something to say because I'm I'm getting you know. Soon I won't be doing this anymore. And I've been doing this. I've been working with people and I'd like to think that I've, I've given them some good qualities about being honest and working hard. And, you know, and so I've been doing this for a while now. So I guess my role now is definitely much more of a mentor. And I would love to believe I'm a guy that can offer what I've learned. So the teaching part is really important to me. One of the most satisfying things is when someone says to me, that was a really good idea. You've, you've solved that problem for us. And, or the guy says even better, you know, from what you taught me, I was able to solve that problem. And uh, that's good. That makes you feel good. Like you've done something. You've obviously had a long journey in, in the football industry. And, you know, we would have to sit here for a couple of days to go through it all. But what would you say was the defining moment for you that, that put you on the map? I think the big moment was World Cup 94. I think it was my dad had passed away in, in 92 in a car accident in the winter of, uh, of 91, excuse me. Yeah, so winter of 91. And um, I was a young man, and I ended up getting the job by happenstance to be the World Cup venue. That was a turning point in my life. I built a... I say a man in a sense of a maturity and understanding, 67 full-time employees, 2,000 volunteers. I was 32 years old. I was way over my head, you know. You know, I had some good, I had some good mentors. A guy named Doug Arnott was very good. He said to me, you know, don't be afraid to make a mistake. And that's something that's always stuck with me, you know, like get as much information as you can, make the decision and move forward. And, and that's something funny. I was working with Sir Alex Ferguson on something, and he was writing a book on leadership on Sir Alex. And I just happened to be there because I put them together. And when Sir get the information, then you make a decision. And you don't look back. You know, years later, you may look back. Like, I remember him saying, like, I should have never traded Stom. I should have never sold Stom, uh, the defender, the Dutch defender. And uh, <clears throat> he said... Uh, you know, he thought he was injured, this and that, but he went with what he had. And for the most part, he's got mo more things right than he's gotten wrong. And I'd like to think that that's, you know, when the, when, when the person said to me, Alan Rothenberg gave me the opportunity to be in the World Cup. And when Doug Arnott said, just make sure you get more things right. I've lived with that. And that's good. And that probably is the World Cup where I learned that. When you think about that World Cup today, sitting here reflecting over it, what are some of the fondest memories that come to mind? The first game, Italy-Ireland, which was incredible because in the tunnel, they're both wearing the same uniforms. They're both in white. 
I mean, you know, these stories, you couldn't make it up, you know, they're both in white and I'm, and the, there's a Swiss guy that comes in from FIFA the, the week of the tournament and he's suddenly running things, you know, it's like, you know, you're there for two years, everyone knows you and you're, and you're, of course you had to be deferential to the FIFA guy coming in and he's like, and I'm like, Walter, Walter. And he's saying, not now, Charlie, not now, not now, not now. And I, Walter, Walter. And he, uh, I finally said to him, Walter, they're both wearing the same fucking uniforms, you know? So he goes, oh, my God. And Ireland turns around, runs in and changes the uniform. This is all happening as you know, this is all happening. And then I went out and they had changed. This is really stupid stuff. They had changed the way you enter the field. And they had changed it after I had practiced, had done practice for, you know, six months, you know, every day. And I, you know, I basically started barking orders, not in a mean way, but let's get this to move this board here. And then the big, big moment when I knew that we were really, really good is when Mexico, Bulgaria, round of 16, the uh, Mexican player fell into the goal and broke the goal arm. Uh, and we changed it. We changed the goal in six minutes, six or eight minutes, something like that. And what people don't know is there was a Champions Cup match in Madrid in the 90s, late 80s, early 90s, where the goal broke and they tried to tape it up, two-hour delay, and then they canceled the game or postponed. Yeah. We, we literally practiced taking a goal out and putting a goal in if it breaks. And we did this. Someone sent me the picture the other day. I was uh, the picture, the uh, a video the other day. It's just hysterical. You know, hear him as a young guy, you know, moving his goal. And, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I know they sound silly in little moments, but they were important moments. And they said, like, you know, you were prepared. You were prepared. You were decisive. And you did your job. And that's it. I wasn't a hero. I just did my job, you know. But it was nice that, you know, you don't really want a World Cup you know, around a 16 game held up for two hours, right? Yeah. Goal. So it was pretty good that we were able to do that. Yeah. I actually got that story almost with the same wording. When I interviewed uh, Jim Trecker, he, um, he told that same story and he said it almost in, in the same way, you know, I mean, the craziness of everything that went into organizing that World Cup, but then, you know, how well organized it was. I mean, it's one of the World Cups that's even today, uh, one of the most praised World Cup organizations in, in history, actually. And he said that same thing. He was, that was the moment when that goal broke and we replaced it. He said, that's when I knew how good we were. Yeah, and Jimmy is a great man, good man, a dear friend. And, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. The guy we changed the goal with, one was Nelson Rodriguez, who's in Chicago Fire yeah. now. One is Tim Castle, who's with me, friends of mine since third grade. And the other guy was Don Lockerbie, who was one of the guys working with us. And we changed this goal across the field. And years later, I'm in, um, well, it was a a year later, I was in England. I was the interim general manager of the national team in 94. Well, not a year. It was October 7th, 1994, I remember. And we were playing, U.S. was playing Wembley, and they asked me to be the general manager. And I was deciding if I was going to be general manager or if I was going to be go with the Metro Stars. Anyway, I'm in England, and the guy's looking at me at the FA, and he keeps staring at me, and he keeps staring at me. And I felt awkward, you know. I didn't know what to say, you know. And he finally says to me, oh, I'm, I apologize. You're the guy that changed the goal. 
And I said, excuse <laughs> me? He goes, we did, we did a little goof video of what happened during that time in different languages. So they had one in English, in German, in Italian. And of course, as these guys, these knuckleheads, me and the guys are moving the goal across the field. And so this guy kept seeing my face, but he couldn't remember where he saw my face, you know, and he's going, and then he goes, ah, it hit me. You were the guy to change the goal. I said, yeah, I was the guy to change the goal, me and my, my crew. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> um, I mean, it obviously comes across, but you're, you know, you're a people's person. You're a a notorious connector you've already mentioned, you know, Sir Alex and, and some of these names that I know you're good friends with. But when it comes to dealing with, you know, the Sir Alexis of the world, Florentino Perez, Mourinho, Ancelotti and these guys, and it's kind of obvious that trust is kind of the main factor, right? You got to build that trust. 100%. And it's easy to say it, but if, if it was easy to do, anybody would do it. How do you actually do it? It's probably the most time-consuming challenge that I think any person would have. And, you know, the best way I could explain it is it's you only earn trust by repeated actions of repeated truthful actions, I'll say. You know, give me that towel, hand me that this, do this. I'm making some silly little points to give you an idea. But it, it comes the same thing. You know, look, in October, I'm going to have, I need to play that game over there. Make sure you have a good training facility for me. So the guy comes over and there's a training facility. It's waiting for him. The bus is waiting for him. Everything's done right. Well, that's one time, you know. And by the way, if you screw up the first time, it's a bad, bad thing to do, you know. Um, doesn't mean you can't recover. And I think that You know, a good example is we had Juventus come over with Lippi one day and they really messed up. They had uh, put sand on the field, you know, to help even out the undulations, but they weren't supposed to do it. They didn't know the team was coming in and it really ruined the field. And we, yeah. I, we had to, it was the field we built for the Italian national team in 94. And, you know, there's another thing, you know, they were going to build 1,994 fields. We built one field. You know, and that's another source of pride that I have, you know, um, built it, my dad's name and, and Miller Bellari, the coach's name. At any rate, uh, you know, it could have been a real disaster. We worked quickly of really good people. The next morning we shifted to training site. So they were able to go to a different training site and it ended up working out. Years later, I'm still friends with Lippy. Why? Because we ended up thinking on our feet moving and getting it done. So, but for the most part, you know, if you're really lucky, <laughs> you get them right more often than not. But it is a fascinating question because as an older guy, uh, as a guy that's been around the block, one of the things that, and I've already told you, I feel real responsibility to see that my guys do well, you know, that they do a good job and that they, you know, They carry on the, let's call it the good work, right? So I always go out of my way to make sure that I bring people with me to these meetings. So even if it's just a friendly meeting, it's, you know, now it's a good example. We see Sir Alex. It's not like Sir Alex is going to make someone's career now. He's no longer managing, right? So do you just say, no, we're not going to do it? No, absolutely not. That trust And relationship has built a friendship. So I'll still bring guys with me to go visit the boss if he's in New York and we're going to come on, let's have dinner with Sir Alex. 
young man will be like, are you got a kid in me? You know what I mean? But I think it's important because you expose the people, you, you make sure they, that they carry that trust on, right? So if this guy comes in next time and Sir Alex's son's in town, oh, you know the guy you met that time, I'll send him to go make sure, don't worry about it. But it's a matter of, I think where people are mistaken is that sometimes they will confuse if you're important, okay, if you're important and wealthy, that you're going to get a certain, you're always going to get a certain level of respect if you're important and you're wealthy, okay? But let me give you a funny little story, an example of how it goes back to doing the little things right, okay? And Stephen Ross was in New York, and well, I was with a friend in, in Madrid, Sorry to interrupt. For those who don't know, especially international listeners who don't know who Stephen Ross is, who is he? Stephen Ross is the owner of Related Company, which is the parent company of ours, Relevant Sports Group. But he's probably the biggest developer in the United States. He owns the Miami Dolphins. He owns so many different you know, companies and pizza, different things that he, he has. And he's an amazing, amazing person. I mean, hard to really underestimate how successful he's been. So uh, with a friend in Madrid and he says to me, what are you doing? I said, I work for Stephen Ross. Oh, you know, I work for, the guy works for the Pope and he does a lot of work in Argentina and he's friends with Macri. So who's the president of Argentina? But I met Macri before he was the mayor of Buenos Aires, before he became the president of the country. I met him when he was the president of Boca Juniors. And we brought Boca Juniors to play in the Champions World Series. So I said to him, is Macri, how's he doing? And he goes, well, he's president now. And I was like, yeah, but I mean, he's president of the country, I said, right? He goes, yeah, yeah, president of country. So he says, hey, why don't we set something up with Mr. Ross? So, okay, what the hell? I go see Mr. Ross and his partner, George Perez, who's down in Miami. And uh, we're in New York City. And, and Macri came over. Remember when those poor six guys were run down by a terrorist? They were vacationing here in New York yeah. City. Yeah. Anyway, we're having this discussion. And we're 15 minutes into this discussion about global everything. Okay? You got three of the most important people in the world there. Uh, I'm not one of them, by the way. You know, with Macri, the president, Stephen Ross, and George Perez, the three of them are there. And they're of course, my role is just to bring them together. And we're about 15 minutes into it. And Steve Ross is talking about Hudson Yards. And that's his latest development, which is in New York City, which is a $25 billion project. And it's just amazing. And so Macri says, well, you know, they're talking about this. And there's talk, we c- can we do something like this in Buenos Aires? And how can we do it? And they're talking. And it's a very friendly conversation. and he goes, I must congratulate you, Steve. And uh, Mr. Ross says, well, I'm very proud of it. It's like a, it's like a, a, a city within a city. And Macri says, no. I mean about putting together the, champion, uh, the International Champions <laughs> Cup. You have all the best teams. I saw the Classico when we did the Classico in Miami. And so here's the president of Argentina saying to Stephen Ross, you really should be proud that you have the best teams in the world. And then he said, you know, he looked at me and he said, you know, why don't you have the real real Classico? And I said, of course, sure, Boca River. 
And he laughed and he said, yes, because, you know, but there's a moment of you could only do that if you're in our wonderful sport, right? And where the president of Argentina is there in an economic and, and, and humanitarian mission to the U.S., and he's talking to one of the biggest developer and uh, his partner, and suddenly he says, congratulations about pulling off the, the big soccer match in Miami, Barcelona against Real Madrid. Uh, to, you know, those are moments that you can't replicate that. You can't say to someone, go ahead, you know, do that. I mean, these are things that started back in 2002, when I was 2001 and 2002, and I met Makari for the first time when I was dealing with him over Boca Juniors. So almost 20 years later, you're sitting there in a room. I'm sure he barely remembers who I am, right? But he does put the connection together that it's the guy that brought my team to America in 2003 when they had Carlos Tevez and stuff like this. And so, you know, those are stories that are, they're authentic. You can't make it up. You can't make up a story like that. It's authentic. Yeah. And I think you said something important in when you build that trust and the time that it takes to build that trust. The other thing is a lot of that also has to do with your mixed background, being exposed to multiple different cultures as well. You know, when we talk about, let's say, doing business in the U.S., if we're just crass about it, it's oftentimes very transactional and very... It's always transactional. And that's not how you can deal with a lot of people outside of here. You got to understand both sides and how to approach that because you can't take the typical American salesy approach and think that you can apply that everywhere. Yeah, I think that there, I mean, I mean, it's so true. I mean, look, I mean, we got the Classico by, you know, Stephen Ross, myself, Matt Higgins, who was, you know, one of Stephen's lieutenants, and Tom Garfinkel, who's the CEO of the Dolphins. You know, we had the, the tools. In other words, we had a billionaire. We had a, a owner of a, a, the Miami Dolphins. We had the CEO of the Miami Dolphins. We had the partners there. We had all the, the appropriate tools. But, and we had one thing that was nice is that Steve doesn't understand football, right? So he's like, well, what's the big deal? It's just Barcelona and Real Madrid. It's not a big deal. But what we had, if I could say, is also me. So we fly in to see President Perez in the morning, the president of Real Madrid and all his people are there, and he sits with me. And I'm interpreting and translating. And, you know, without Mr. Ross, it's not going to happen. Without Tom Garfinkel and, and uh, you know, Matt Higgins, it's not going to happen. Because they're saying, look, we're going to make it like a Super Bowl. And we're going to do this. We're gonna do this. But then at some point, he turns to me, are you going to make it a circus? Or is it going to be our game? Hmm. No, no, we're going to respect the game. That's the most important thing. Now, then we go to Barcelona. We have the same, essentially the same conversation. And I think that... You know, that those are, again, only years and years of trust. I met Florentino Perez in 2002, and I think the opposite is true. And I think it's really probably the most difficult thing to teach is because if you're rich or you have a big business background, you believe, you know, in America, you can get anything you want, right? You can do anything you want. Let's be honest. Even if the guy doesn't like you, he's going to say, well, it's good for business. So I'll just, I'll do the deal with him, right? It doesn't work that way in Europe or in South America or, you know, it doesn't. It just doesn't. If they don't want to do business with you, they won't do business with you. 
And it's nothing to do with it. They don't sit there and go, oh, we could have made $10 million. They're like, no, I'm glad we didn't deal with this guy because I think this guy's a jerk, right? And so, you know, I think the big mistake that people make is they think, well, if I met the person one time, I have a relationship. Right. Um, and they may have met the person in just a casual way. And they may have met the person in a sense saying, hey, I'm rich and famous. Well, it doesn't mean you're going to be able to to put people together. You know, you're not, it doesn't mean you're going to be able to convince that person to do something, nor does it give you the ability to put that person together with somebody else. Because quite often that is it. It's like you have to have trust from both parties to say, okay, you know, Sir Alex, this is Carlo. Carlo's a great man. Sir Alex, you're a great man. You guys are going to love each other because I know you. And, and the reaction is, if you say so, I'll give it a try. Doesn't mean it always works out, right? But more often than not, if there's mutual trust there toward you or you're the person putting together, you can you can do almost anything. You really can. You know, obviously you can't get people to do something stupid or something against their interest, but I'm saying if there's something that's reasonable, I mean that's what fascinates me is that so many teams are afraid of their managers. And in fact, over the years they've said to me, Charlie, can you talk to our manager? <laughs> You know, it's like, excuse me? It's like, yeah, we, we want to play this game in whatever. I'm making something up, Chicago. But he doesn't want to go there because he had a bad experience when he was 12 years old. I don't know. I'm making just stuff up for fun, right? And you're like, okay, but why can't you talk to him? No, no, it's better if you talk to him. He trusts you. I'm like, okay. So I'll call the manager up and I'll say like, you know, and if I don't know the manager, I'll make sure that I'll have someone vouch for me, right? So, yeah. you know, and, and the person's, you know, these people don't give us away easily. So like Zidane, who I've become very close with, was able to, you know, it was only because people would say to him, oh, you can trust Charlie. Mm -hmm. He's a guy you could trust, right? And it sort of rolls on itself. And I think that, you know, that's one of the joys of being older, right? That, I, that I've earned this trust and I've earned this respect. and. You know, I mean, I, this is sort of like a little bit of tangent, but I think part of that is having the respect of everyone. So like the best example I can give you, and one of the proudest moments I had was I was traveling with a young person who's a very smart guy. He's our CEO, Danny, as I mentioned, Danny Silman. And he's, and we went to into Manchester and the woman who's been there for literally 50 years Charlie, it's so good to see you. Then you go to security guard. Can, you know, I just was going to see, you know, so you're walking around this place and you've met two security guards and a ticket taker. And I don't know if he realized this, you know what I mean? But mm -hmm. in the end, you only get to talk to the Glazers and to talk the owners of the team and to talk to Sir Alex Ferguson or David Gill, or in this case, Ed Woodward, the CEO. You only, because you've spent, 20 years getting to know the woman who takes the tickets at the front. So instead of just blowing that person off, you know, you better damn take the time to respect that person. And that's all it is. It's not a game. It's not like, you know, that person may be gone tomorrow, but if I respect that person, you know, at the end of the day, more often than not, they'll respect you back and it'll work out for you. That's it. It's not that complicated. It's just time consuming. Thank you.
something you, you've mentioned here as well, besides building trust, you mentioned you've also brokered you know, more than a few important meetings between people. What would you say is the most significant connection between two people that you've made that you've looked at later on and said, wow, I had no idea it would have such an impact? Yeah, I mean, that's a tricky one. Um, I, I would probably say it's Florentino Perez and Stephen Ross. I think that probably that's the connection, and and I would I would add Stephen Ross and 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 uh, Bartomeo, the president of Barcelona. Um, you know, uh, so many. Uh, I think Stephen Ross is not done yet doing his magic, and so you know I've introduced him to Johnny Infantino and and President Seferin uh, from UEFA and FIFA and UEFA respectively. And we're doing a lot in that arena, you know, and I think that they are, those are probably the most important connections in this part of my life, you know. Um, there's been other ones along the way we've managed to to do, and some that I've never even gotten credit for. I'll give you one that is a funny one. Carlos Queiroz was my manager at the at the Metro Stars. And Peter Kenyon was with Manchester United at the time. And he called me up and he said, we'd like you to introduce us to a couple of guys. And one was Carl Sabretta Pajero, was my manager at the Metro Stars. And he wasn't going to be the assistant to Sir Alex, but he was the guy they, you know, at least questioned. And the other guy was, um, was Carlos Queiroz, who I introduced Sir Alex Ferguson. I'm not even sure he knows that I'm the one that brought him to Manchester United. <laughs> I mean, I really mean that. Uh, and, you know, I gave all the, you know, this, he worked for him for a year. He's a great man. He went to Grampus 8. He replaced Arsene Wenger when Arsene Wenger went to Arsenal and blah, 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 blah. And I don't even think they realize it. To this day, I'm the guy to put him there. And, Car- and, and Sir Alex Ferguson says he's one of the most influential assistants he's ever had, if not the most influential assistant. So... You know, they've done pretty well with him over the years. And that's just an example and, and that I can can come to. And now I, I talk about, you know, we did the Classico, bringing Steve, Mr. Ross together with those guys. So, yeah, I mean, I think that there's, I think that those are really, really satisfying moments. Uh, and uh, the example of them probably not even knowing that I introduced uh, Queiroz is, is a satisfying one. And kind of a, a funny one, yeah. Who's the person in the football world who's um, influenced you the most? Uh, who's influenced you the most? I would say, uh, well, outside of my dad, you know, as far as you're saying in the football world, I would say in a, in a high-level football world, I would say Sir Alex Ferguson's probably probably been the most influential to me. Um, taught me the most, probably Sir Alex did. Although, you know, I've worked with so many wonderful people. I had Carlos Alberto Pajera was my manager. Abora Militinovich was my manager. I had some people that influenced me good and bad, I'd say. I'd laugh a little bit. But um, as far as uh, someone who I admire, who's, who's a fantastic executive, is Jose Angel Sanchez. From Real Madrid, he's their CEO, and I've learned an enormous amount from him, without question. A guy I really, really admire, Florentino Perez. 
I mean, I, I've seen him do magic that is hard for me to even even grasp. He does things that you know that other people say are impossible. What's an example of that? Well, an example would be first of all, someone like Florentino Perez. When he came in 2002, he said, I will never, and we did Real Madrid against Roma, and we did it to fight UN AIDS. My brother, my late brother was um, the architect of that. And we put it together, and uh, we had Kofi Annan there, Henry Kissinger, and Pele, and it was really a wonderful event we put together. And we raised about a half a million dollars to fight AIDS with the UN at the time. And we brought over Real Madrid against Roma. and. There were so many wonderful moments about that. You know, Del Bosque and Capello, Del Bosque and Capello were both, uh, you know, the managers for Real Madrid and Roma. You had some of the biggest players in the world from Zidane to, you know, to Figo, to Cafu, to Totti. It was really a, a wonderful, magical sort of night that we had there. Uh, I'm losing my trend of thought, Sebastian. You might have to, might have to uh, pull this, re- redo this part. What were you talking about with the... Uh, An example of, you said that Florentino has... Yeah, uh, okay. So magic. And, and he said to me, you know, we're never going to do this again because I don't want to do a big team against a big team. I want it to be all about Real Madrid. And I convinced him to say, you know, because he had an open mind. I said, you know, you're always going to rise. You're Real Madrid. Your Barcelona's of the world. You know, these teams are, they're going to rise. And I said that it's better big against big. And, you know, he took this 15 years later when we had the Classico, his, his lieutenants were telling him, do not do it. We don't want to do this. And he said, no, you know, we're going to do this. And I, it couldn't, no matter how good Steve Ross is, how important he is, no matter how good the presentations were and my assistance or whatever it might be. At the end of the day, he had to be the one to say, okay, we're going to do this. And it's having, that, it's having that vision, you know, that other people may not, they might get stuck in, they might get stuck in their own culture, right? Which is like, you're not allowed to do this. Real Madrid's not allowed to play against them, against Barcelona outside of Spain, outside of a regular game. And that's just an example of, you know, sort of forward thinking in their minds. And it's, you know, he's not a young man. He's 12 years older than me, but he's a guy that, you know, why not do something that's different, you know? And so, you know, these are examples. Sir Alex is another one, you know, that, that is a guy that he believed in me. He believed in, you know, I would say this, that, you know, that when they believe in you, they said, you know, He'll turn to Steve Ross and say, big against big is the only thing that matters. And, you know, when someone like that says that, it just changes the whole dynamic in the room, you know? So I've always prided myself in, in doing what people think is impossible to do, from getting Carlos Alberto Pereira to be our manager, to doing the Classico, to changing the goal, to do things. I mean, things that if you're prepared and you're willing to think on your feet, you should be able to get a lot of things done that people, they underestimate you. You've been called a power broker sometimes in the media. In what way is power important to you? Um, I think power is important. It helps you accomplish things. I think that's the most important part about it. I think it, 
like I never really saw myself honestly as a power broker, but I think that you know that's really more a result of of accomplishing something, of getting something done that people say you can't get done. You know, you'll never create a tournament with club teams. They'll never all get together. It's like herding cats, and we did it. You know, you'll never get you know Carlos Alberto Pereira to be your manager. You know, who the hell are you? You're a little fledging team, and he won the World Cup. You know, and I see those as challenges. And I see those as opportunities, you know, I really do. And um, yeah, that's, that's what keeps me going every day. Another piece I remember reading, I believe it was in the BBC, where they said something along the lines of, you know, you being a poster boy for greed. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> where does that come from? Uh, you know, it's, it's a funny thing. It's an interesting one. They say that I'm a billionaire. Um, I'm still in my first home, which was a pretty modest home. It's basically one bath and two and a half bedrooms. <laughs> we since put a bathroom in the basement, uh, and then we're still here, my wife and I. And um, I don't know where that comes from. I think that a lot of it comes from the, I mean, it, it's a great example. This was, we were talking about creating a, a Super League. We were in the midst of it. Discussions were going on with the clubs. And, and a lot of what people are afraid of is, are, is change, right? And so they're looking for that enemy. So even people who I, or friends of mine, I found during that time period turned on me. We're like, you know, I felt like Michael Corleone had to go to hide in, in Sicily. Like I had killed somebody. It was kind of, it was crazy. It was crazy. But, you know, they saw that I had brought all these big, players together you know when you see steven ross you see you know florentino perez you see carlines rubinega different you know giants in the sport and who brought these guys together some guy from new jersey right and so i guess they assumed during that time period that i was this wealthy billionaire which is very very funny and i in fact i offered the guy who wrote the article that if he came to my house and it was a mansion because he said I often have Sir Alex at my mansion, that he could have it if he could prove it's a mansion. Uh, yeah, I don't know where that, that comes from. I think that, you know, the thing that, that I think is the funny part about our sport and any sport is that there's this wonderful mix of tradition. And um, on the other hand, there's people trying to push the envelope and change things. Our sport in particular is, is very hard to change things. And, you know, what I find just, just fascinating is, you know, I'll give you an example. The biggest detractors, the biggest people that were most annoyed at the concept of the Super League were the English folks. You know, we have the biggest and the best league in the world. And I say English folks, I'm talking about journalists, uh, if you will, pundits, other people, you know. And what I found fascinating, what I said to some of them that would actually listen, well, how do you think the Premier League started? The Premier League was completely against tradition. They took the first, second, third divisions of the old football league and they got rid of it. And they created their own Super League in England. Yeah. It just so happened that their league was way, way inferior to Italy as an example. And now they're, you know, 10 times bigger than the Italian league. But it's all because they tore down tradition and started from scratch. But then these are the same people that are saying, you know, you're a criminal, you're the greedy guy, all you want to do is, is, uh, is make money. I guess a lot of this is, is fear. 
is ignorance of what you're trying to do. And a lot of it, you know, is probably just part of the tabloids, you know, the red tops that, you know, they, they, Sir Alex taught me this, you know, that people are fighting for readership. Yeah, it's changed a little bit with the internet, but still people are still trying to, trying to be the one to break the story and to say it. In this case here, they were able to put a face to this idea that there was a super league. They didn't understand that, you know, that it was just discussions in the beginning. And it was really more of, can we make what we have now better? Not tear things down. What can we do? But that got turned into, well, they didn't really know what we were saying. And some of the things we said were completely distorted. You know, again, that's something you have to live with, right? You have to, you have to say, okay, what was I doing here? Was it the right thing? You know, again, I, I have this discussion with people all the time and very reasonable people will say to me, well, you're wrong. The Super League is terrible. No one will ever want to watch Bayern Munich play Real Madrid twice a year. I'm like, okay, well, they do it in the NFL. They do it in the NBA. I'm not saying it's the right thing to do. And I'm not saying there should be relegation and promotion. But some of the arguments are kind of, they're, they're kind of silly. And when you look at things like, uh, look at VAR. Okay, here's the big argument that I cannot tell you how many expats said this to us on the radio. Here's the problem with VAR. Okay, I said, well, what's the problem with VAR? That's kind of, we won't be able to have these arguments in the pub anymore. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, now I look back on it. There's more arguments now than there was before this. They thought it was going to be like the internet where you have, where, you know, you're arguing, didn't the guy, who scored two goals in that game? Was it him? You look at the internet and that conversation's over, right? Oh, it, yeah. was, it was Joe who scored two goals, right? No, it's the exact opposite. There's more arguments now with VAR than before you had VAR. So sometimes things don't turn out as you think they're going to turn out. And my only thing is that the only way you're going to have meaningful change is to take some chances and to look at things from different angles. It doesn't mean you're always going to do them. doesn't mean you're right, by the way. It doesn't mean you're always right, but... Some of the some of the stuff that came out of that time was just uh, petty, and uh, yeah, I'd have to say it was hurtful. But what can you do? Yeah, no, it's interesting. Even a couple of examples that that you're using. Well, one obviously the the, the football industry has been and still is very traditionally mm -hmm. driven for the most part. But then you see, I mean, even when the Champions League came about in the early 90s, there was a lot of criticism against sure. that. And lo look at what that has done for the game, the formation of the English Premier League as well, which at the time was, you know, there was a lot of inspirations and influences from American sports and how sure they really com commercialized the game. And where they say now, like, you know, who's this guy with a Super League? I mean, A, like I said, it's not what they think it is, but... Even putting that aside, I mean, they created the biggest league in the world by doing things different. Yeah. Um, what's something true that almost nobody agrees with you on? <laughs> That's a great one. What is true that no one agrees with me on? Um, well, that's a great question, but I, I would say that um, change is good for the game. And I think that most people don't think that that's true. I think that, you know, I still remember when we had the back pass to the goalkeeper. My God, it was the end of the freaking world, you know? 
Um, and so has that changed the game for the better? Yes. It doesn't mean you have to do it every year, but we have this IFAB thing that is, you know, the first hundred years or so of this thing, the rules were done by, by literally only Englishmen and people from Great Britain. They had one person from each of the four countries uh, in Great Britain were part of the were part of the IFAB. And then finally, about 10, 15 years ago, I think they let in five or five other guys into the thing, right? But, you know, this is like, uh, my God, to, to change a rule to, to, it's, you know, I understand it's global, but it's really, um, it, it, to me, it, it's, we should open our eyes to it. And if there's something that can improve the game, we should do it. You're a great storyteller and have this unique ability in telling them in a very engaging way. What would be a story that's so crazy that it's almost hard to believe? One of those stories where you go, you have to have been there to really believe it. Yeah, I could tell you a story that happened in World Cup that I don't tell that often. That was, you'd have to, you know, be there to believe it, I think. And, you know, we were, it was a, a moment of lucidity for me in a meeting that I was called into New Jersey sports authority with the governor in New Jersey. Well, you have to understand that there was a host committee in New York and New Jersey. And in New York, it was uh, mayor Dinkins was the person behind it. In January of that year, Giuliani came in and governor Florio was the, the governor of New Jersey. And then governor Whitman came in, both went from Democrat, to Republican. And you have to understand that what happens for World Cup is that there's a lot of favors given out by the, you know, the ruling party, let's say what it is. And one of them was tickets. And it was already, you know, the Democrats had already given the tickets away to their constituents. You know, and they sold them what they had to do with them, but they were promised away. And I was called into a meeting. And like I said, I'm 32 years old. I'm called into a meeting by myself. And they basically sandbagged. I walked in, the governor's there, and like there's 23 people in the room and me. And um, this was right when they were going to build, they were really pushing for heavy security at the World Cup. We were going to have fences separating people and everything else, and fences in front of the fans at Giant Stadium Insanity, you know? And uh, I was there, and we couldn't sell the skyboxes. It won't be the problem next time around we have the World Cup. We'll sell like hotcakes. But people have to understand that we weren't sure it was even going to be successful, the World Cup. The ethnic people, like my father and his friends that bought tickets, they're not going to buy a skybox. And back in 94, it was like almost unheard of, you know? Certainly not these prices that they're going to pay to see a soccer game. And we had probably half the boxes left for Giant Stadium. And we couldn't sell them but they didn't know we couldn't sell them. I was there under enormous pressure and there was about, oh, I don't know, some crazy number, like $10 million at that time for security that they were trying to throw onto us. They basically said, you know, we want our tickets. And I said, I don't have tickets, <laughs> you know? And then part of the discussion was about security and World Cup was going to pay for the tickets. And no matter what, happen here. I don't think I've told the story really. You know, no matter what happened here, you're going to get, you're going to pay for security and we want the tickets. And I just had this moment of lucidity and I said, tell you what, I'll give you half our skyboxes if you pay for security. And 
there was a guy, governor's guy, a guy named Francis. I can't think of his first name, but he prided himself in being a real deal maker. So I put my hand out and I said, come on, let's make a deal. And I saw the other guys at the giant stadium, the old, the, the sports authority people going like, don't do it, don't do it. <laughs> and he shook my hand and that was it. Governor left the room. I was by myself and it was, I basically called up the headquarters in Los Angeles and I said, you're not going to believe this. They're paying for security. <laughs> you know. And I said, I had to give them half the skyboxes. And they're like, really? How many do we have? I'm saying we have like 34. I gave them like 16 of them or whatever it was, you know, whatever the number was there. And uh, I know it's 17 is a half of it. But anyway, uh, it was uh, it was a moment that was kind of, couldn't really believe it. Another one was the three tenors. First time they performed was in 1990 uh, in Italy at the, at the Spanish Steps. And I had the idea of having the three tenors be at Central Park. We had a semifinal on Wednesday. They had a semifinal on Wednesday in the West Coast. And I said, let's have the three tenors be at Central Park. And basically we were, you know, Alan Rothenberg was humoring me because he wanted them at Dodger Stadium where they ended up playing. Uh, but he said, you know, it's hard to argue against Central Park Thursday night in the summertime, you know, for three tenors. Really hard to argue. And so... Yep. I mean, it's a, it's a great idea, right? I'm sure it wasn't, you know, it's the idea I had, and I said, we got to do this. And uh, he humored me in a sense where he said, okay, go ahead. And they used to have this crazy guy who ran the parks department. Commissioner Stern was his name. And I say he was crazy because he used to go around like Uncle Sam, dress and walk around Times Square like Uncle Sam and stuff. And um, we met with him. I got a meeting with him. It was really great. Again, I'm over my head. I'm in with these big guys, and I'm like, I have a great idea we'd like to have the three tenors play in Central Park. And they're like, well, okay, you got our stance, got to be for free. We're like, no problem. You know I mean? Got to get sponsors. Like, no problem. This will be, this is great. You know, I'm thinking a million people. I get so excited, you know? And he turns to me and goes, this is really good, but you have to move the World Cup one week. <laughs> I said, excuse me? He said, well, we have the gay games. They had only two gay games ever. Um, it wasn't gay pride games. It was gay games. So you had to be gay to participate, which limits your pool of, of participants, right? Uh, and so they had one year in San Francisco and they had the next year in New York in 94. And so he said, we have the gay games. We can't move it. So you have to move the World Cup a week. And I said, we just can't do it. You know, and so like, how could you make that up? You know, you can't make it up. <laughs> so I was like, okay, no concert. It was at a... Dodger Stadium. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good one. All righty. We're getting towards the end. I'll shoot a set of rapid fire questions. If there's anything you want to elaborate on, feel free to do so, but these should be pretty quick. Favorite team? AC Milan. When I was a kid, I admired the Juventus team of the, the late 70s, early 80s. But then I fell in love with, I fell in love with a guy named Johnny Rivera. And my dad said, you got to see this guy. And so I was always a Milan fan from the start. But then it's a wonderful Juventus team. A lot of the players have played in the 82 World Cup that won the World Cup. Cabrini, I wore number three because of Cabrini. Um, and then I became really a AC, I went mean, back to being an AC Milan fan, if you will, because they were great again, and I really uh, loved watching them. And uh, 
you know, I'm still very much a fan. And it's kind of funny. And you think by the time you're 60 years old, you're not going to be crying and you still cry. If you cannot say Messi or Ronaldo, who is the best player in the world today? Mbappe. The most powerful man in football. There's a, there's a lot of guys that are up there, but I would say probably Florentino Perez. The proudest moment in your career? Semi-final giant stadium when the Italy had just beaten Bulgaria and I'm walking out in a field with my friends. In this case, it was Nelson Rodriguez. He put his arm around him and he said, your dad would be proud. What's a recommendation to someone who wants to follow in your footsteps? Um, just work hard and be yourself. I mean, there's no real secret to it. And don't be afraid to take a chance. Don't be afraid to take a chance. You've mentioned a few in this conversation, but who would you say is a football person that you look up to and you think people should really follow and learn from? I told you um, there's been a lot over the years. Uh, David Gill, Peter Kenyon, they were at Manchester United and, and Peter went to Chelsea. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, I'm not talking managers now, but general managers and such. Jose Angel Sanchez, I think, is is one of the best in the business. I think Ferran Soriano does a great job at, at Man City. Uh, there's, there's many really, really good ones, and I think they've become uh, – I know uh, Ed Woodward gets a lot of flack, but he's done a good job with uh, taking care of the interests of you know Manchester United. Things are are not always easy, but uh, you know there's a, there's a lot of good people out there that have done a lot of good work. Who's someone who's really progressive that you think people should be paying more attention to? I think that um, I'd like to say Alexander Seferin and and. Uh, Uh, I think he's a guy that that has a lot of the right ideas. I think that, yeah, he'd be a good one to to look to. I also hope that, um, and I have a real hope for this, that Johnny Infantino can, I'm, I'm really hoping that these two leaders in particular, first of all, I hope they can mend the fence because they're always, uh, they're always at odds, but I'd really love to see these two guys step up, you know? What's the book that has impacted you the most and you think people should read? Jeez, that's a great question. Well, I'm a history buff, you know, so I'm not really, I just finished the Grant book that was fascinating to me. That was fascinating about leadership. Uh, I found it fascinating because he made so many mistakes and there's so many vulnerabilities, but he did so many, I think, interesting He learned from a lot of his mistakes. They did a lot of good things, too. What's the name of the book? Uh, Grant. You have a film or series recommendation? Yeah, film. I, I, you know, I think that you know, The Godfather 1 and 2 are, I, I really think that they're, I'm not one of these nuts that you know, quotes it and this and that and has a copy on his, on his desk. And I know a lot of people have that. And, and you know, there's a bit of ambivalence in a sense that, you know, these are bad people too, as much as they romanticize it. So, and as an Italian American, it does stick to me that, you know, people think, Oh, well, he must be, you know, it's funny. I went to law school and, and uh, I went to university at Princeton, which was predominantly white. I went to 
uh, law school at Rutgers University. It was predominantly in Newark. That was, you know, the community was predominantly black, at least the group that, that I dealt with all the time. And one time a guy said to me in our study group in, in law school, great guy. Dakar Rahim Ross was his name. He was my, one of my closest friends in law school. Just a great person, brilliant guy. And he said to me, uh, you know, you don't understand what prejudice is like here. There's going to be an Italian-American president before there's a black president. And I said, don't bet on it because we're the last people you can still make fun of and you can still <laughs> tease. And the commercials go on about, oh, the, the little Italian ladies making a meatballs and this and that. And, you know, it, I mean, it's funny because people say things to me that they would never say to somebody else, a different race or religion or whatever it is. But as Italian, you could, they could take a little, little shot at you. So I say this with a grain of salt. I do find that the Godfather wanted to really capture the essence of a lot of lessons in the business world. And a lot of lessons you come over, and of course they're they're dramatic and they're exaggerated and they're, there's you know I'm not naive you know you don't go around shooting people right but you uh, but there's a lot of lessons of honor and loyalty and I would say you know where deception and understanding it recognizing it and honesty and lies you know you get the whole world in there and I find them pretty pretty uh, I find them still. Very timeless. Do you have anything you would like to recommend? Yeah, I think that I'd say be curious. You know, I recommend be curious. Um, I'm fascinated. I went to Florence and I went to the Da Vinci Museum. And I found that that's another book that's fascinating. The book on Da Vinci is that most recently. And the book on Michelangelo called The Pope's Ceiling, which is just fantastic. Uh, both books are, are incredible because they're, what you find with, especially with Da Vinci, is the curiosity. And you say, wow, this guy is incredible. Look what a brilliant guy he is. And of course, he's one of life's most brilliant people, you know, him and Abe Lincoln and, and uh, Martin Luther King and people I admire, right? But it, what struck me about him was curiosity and how everything made him curious. And he experimented. And it sounds so stupid and so simple, but it's what we do every day, right? Like, I'm curious about this. Do you think we could pull this off? Think we could do this game? Think we could do this event? What could we do? And uh, yeah, it's give it a shot. You think I could cook this? Can I cook this? I don't know. Let me see. What would I have to do to cook this? What skills do I have that takes me to this next level? So I say, always be curious and continue to learn things. Who do you think I should interview on this podcast? I, there's so many fascinating people you could interview. I mean, uh, but I would say to you that any one of these, uh, I think general managers from a big club, I'd be curious to hear them talk to you. So like a, a Ferran Soriano, Jose Angel Sanchez, Ned Woodward, guys I mentioned, there's many, many, many more, you know what I mean? But I'd be fascinated to have you talk to one of these guys and uh, pick their brain on one side because you have a lot of sort of deep, philosophical questions. I think the guy that you should interview is Jose Angel Sanchez. I'm going to do that too, because he's a philosopher. Uh, he studied philosophy. So I'd, I'd pick him out first. You'd, you'd enjoy that. Or, you know, the guys that I loved uh, that I find fascinating is, uh, I only had short interviews with him, but Simeone, and I just interviewed recently Gattuso. Mm. And uh, they were just 
fascinating, fascinating. And uh, yeah, I mean, I would, I would get in there. Zidane was really made me smile the whole time. The guys like that, that I think can offer so much more in life. And uh, no. Sir Alex Ferguson to me is a guy that is so brilliant. And I think he's the best manager that ever lived. And so I know I've given you a lot of names and stuff. If I had to give you just one, I would give you Sir Alex Ferguson's the guy. Fantastic. To learn a lot from him. I might shoot you a note on, on that sure. one. Sure. All right, Charlie. Thanks thank so you, much. Thank you, Sebastian. I appreciate all your time and, and uh, thank you. Thank you. Have a good one. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts, write a review on iTunes, tell a friend about it, and all that good stuff. The Football Studio will be back next week. Thanks again. 